My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. If you had some cash on the sidelines today, today was terrific. If you don't have cash, then any session where the Dow plunges 406 points, the S&P plummets 1.76%, and the NASDAQ nosedives 1.99% is an absolute nightmare. The House of Pain. Given that September tends to be a nightmarish month, it's good to have some cash. So tonight, we're holding a coronation. Because right now, cash is king. Regular viewers know that this market's been making me nervous for a while. I've been telling you to take some profits for the last three weeks. For my charitable trust, we've sold some of every single tech stock we own, including some very, very good favorites that you are aware of. Every single one. First time in 15 years because bulls make money, bears make money, but hogs, hogs, they get slaughtered. I love these tech companies, but I looked at the charitable trust cost basis in these stocks and it doubles, triples, quadruples. I looked at the price earnings multiples and the gains everybody's got because they were all at their highs. And I said, you know what? We are out of our minds with greed. You got to be disciplined. And in my book, that means taking profits while you have them. Now, I know some of you will say this violates everything you've ever heard about investing. Buy and hold. Don't trover trade. Think long term. Or most recently, or I should say, Stocks or stonks only go up. Only go up. But there's one rule that supersedes all the others, and if you don't know it, write it down. Discipline trumps conviction. That's the most important concept in the business. No matter how much you might love a stock, discipline says you need to start ringing the the register when you've got a gigantic gain. That's why we sold some of my most beloved stocks for the Travel Trust, which you can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. When we made these sales, I literally hid in my garden's tomato aisles because I felt so terrible, so horrible. It hurt, but that's what happens. That's what discipline is. It can hurt. It means you can raise some cash, though, before the market turns into a slaughterhouse. And that's what it did last week. Yeah, the selling worked. Conviction can make you money. But discipline saves you money. Now, by midday Tuesday of this week, stocks had come down so hard so fast, 10% decline in three days, that I fully expected a bounce, and I told you we would get it. It's exactly what we had yesterday. On Tuesday night, and again yesterday, I told you you have to sell something into strength if you hadn't taken anything off the table yet, because you don't want to go into a brutal session like this one with no cash. It's why I always tell you not to buy stocks with borrowed money. Stocks aren't like a house. You can't live in them if your investment goes down. Try sleeping in Nikola or Occidental. Right now, we have about 15% of the portfolio in cash for the charitable trust. That's a very high amount. Why so much cash? Okay, first, the market's given us some incredible gains, and I, in the, in, including, by the way, at the beginning of September, I hate September's. Historically, it's been the toughest month of the year. You hear all these simple August, you know, go in May, say whatever. No, it's September. It is always a bad month, almost always the worst. 
Second, as we pointed out with Carly Garner's terrific chart work last night, you know I believe in her, the risk-reward here is not so high. Garner explained that we could go up a bit, which we did this very morning, but after one last gasp higher, she predicted maybe a big downdraft. When the potential upside is much smaller than the potential downside, you got to take something off the table. You know I think Carly's money. That's why I presented her charts last night. Third, Washington. All right, there's a ton of frustration with our political leaders who can't seem to come to any agreement on a stimulus deal. Now, maybe you don't feel it unless you work in an industry that's been trashed by the pandemic. But when restaurants or gyms are only allowed to operate, say, at 25 percent capacity for public health reasons, they're not going to stay open. They can't. Don't get me wrong. We need social distancing. I take the virus very seriously. You know that. I'm Mr. Mask. Remember my contest? It's just that we also need some major government intervention, some business interruption insurance, or else pretty much every cafe and bar is going to go under. Now, maybe you don't care. Maybe it doesn't matter. You still have Chipotle, right? Chipotle be in business. Olive Garden's going to make it. Maybe you go Wendy's a lot. Wendy's pretty good. I, I like a big, big Mac fries that I could. You'll know, you get my picture. But I know because I own a small, or owned, uh, I hope not, I own a small plate Mexican place in Brooklyn. It's a bar, Bar San Miguel. Now, what, what's going on there? Well, we've been closed. Bars are apparently too risky to reopen. Hard to make money when you're closed. Take that from me. When LMR is going to let us open again, so long as we operate at 25% capacity, and nobody sits at the bar. Well, there's good. You have a bar, but you can't sit at the bar. Who the heck wants to run a tavern when you lose three-quarters of your potential revenue, but all your costs stay the same? If we could even have half the number of people, maybe we would only lose a little. But right now, I'm thinking it's crazy to keep running this thing, even as it was always a labor of love. And we had been pretty profitable for the pandemic in over eight-year period. Now, think about the millions of establishments that aren't laborers of love. That's what matters. They're just regular businesses, not to mention the millions of people that they employ who are going to lose their jobs when it gets cold. We're looking at a small business apocalypse again, unless Washington gets its act together. And the fact that Congress can't agree on a plan is pathetic. Fourth, even though stocks have come down hard in the past week, that doesn't necessarily make them cheap. There are plenty of COVID winners in tech that still trade at nosebleed levels, and they can go higher, but Wow. It's not great, especially in an election year where the one candidate's eager to raise taxes on capital gains, which some people may want to take now ahead of maybe his victory. And the other one keeps rationing up tensions with China to the point where I got to check this Twitter feed every second. Finally, there are some increasingly glaring negatives. The price of oil goes down 10 percent. And what happens? Suddenly we get a bunch of oil stocks that can be knocked over by a feather. It doesn't help that regulators in Colorado this afternoon just made it harder to drill. Meanwhile, the banks are horrendous again. Today, we learned that Michael Corbett, the CEO of Citigroup, is retiring in February to be replaced by Jane Frazier, the current president and head of consumer banking. Corbett's done an incredible job by many metrics. Citi's making much more money. It's way more efficient. He's returned massive amounts of capital to shareholders. You expect the stock to be up huge, right? But this market hates bank stocks. They don't go higher no matter what you do. Which brings me back to the need for cash and the coronation tonight. If we hadn't sold so, many, so much stock for the travel trust, today would have been a horror show. We'd be sitting there looking at the prices and beating ourselves up for not taking profits when we had the chance. We certainly wouldn't be looking for any buying opportunities. No, we've been sweating bullets, and if we were on margin, we'd be holding on for dear life. Take away the tie, take away the shoelaces. If you got cash, though, you know what happens? You go into the sell-off with your bat on your shoulder. You wait for the perfect pitch. You can do it. I mean, it actually, at one point, I want to say it because people lose money, but it actually felt good. It felt like a doubleheader, seven-inning games. Cash gives you a superior attitude and a superior state of mind. To borrow my favorite line from that Steven Seagal classic, Hard to Kill. It allows you to sit back and look for discounts in the stocks you most, most like. 
Given that we haven't given up all of yesterday's gains, let, let alone tested the lows, I took the dare from the Chapel Trust, think more about the big picture and, of course, the Chiefs game in fantasy. Uh, cash allows you to do that. It allows you the freedom and security, which is why it's so great to have it in your portfolio, when, especially when it's king. And we're in no hurry to spend our cash for the trust. There are a lot of stocks I've told you to buy on a pullback, but can we have the pullback, please, before we buy them? And that means you got to do a little waiting. Without a lot of cash, you'd be forced to sell something into weakness if you wanted to do any buying. If you borrowed money, your broker might be force, forcing you to sell at a loss. Bottom line, September is going to be bad. It's a bad month, okay? Maybe this is the one in uh, whatever. Uh, but these sell-offs go down a whole lot easier when you've got a sizable cash position. So please, if you haven't already done it, register. I'm sure it'll try to bounce again tomorrow. That's what it does. Get your head clear. Do a little selling. And let stocks go down to the levels that we said are actually attractive. How about we go to Jonathan in South Carolina? Jonathan. Booyah, Jimbo. Booyah. What's going on? A couple weeks ago on the uh, lightning round, you said you would hold Boeing. Considering the 8% or so drop and negative news that has come out since then, do you still hold that opinion? Absolutely. Now, you're talking about a stock that I am worried about, a company that I'm worried about. I mean, have you ever seen a series of headlines and you read the stories and you got to start thinking, OK, does the government want the board replaced? Does the government want the CEO to be replaced? Because this is a nightmare. It's just a nightmare. Let's go to Rick in Mississippi. Rick. Hey, Jim. Rick from Oxford, Mississippi here. All right. Hey, I've been wanting to I've been wanting to try and participate in IPOs for a while. Started investing in, in stocks to get in on the action, specifically right. Graph Industrial Pershing. You know, Graph's up 70% over the last 30 days, getting ready to merge with Velodyne. What's your opinion on SPACs as a means to participate in IPO type activity? Well, I, you know, it's case by I case. I happen to graph. like the UTS one very much. I thought that was good. Um, but for the most part, these are black boxes, and you got to look at each one. We studied UTS closely. I'll tell you what. If, um, if James Graff wants to come on air, uh, who is the CEO of Graff, I think we could learn a lot, and then I'd be able to make a decision. Okay. Cash is king, especially in the nightmarish month of September, especially when you've got the president saying now there'll be no extension of the TikTok deadline. Oh, my God, does he hate China or what? Hey, listen, I'm no fan, but it's kind of, woo, on man money tonight. It had the biggest first day pop for a U.S. tech company in nearly 20 years when it IPO'd in, June, in July. But what is Encino signaling after earnings? I've got the exclusive plus. RH is soaring after earnings. Could changing consumer habits help continue to push that stock higher? I'll talk to the CEO. And as the pandemic rages on, we're only just beginning to understand its impact on our mental health. I'm talking with a company that's, that's hoping to help. Don't miss my sit down with Sage Therapeutics. Stay with Chris. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. wondering about this massive disconnect between the brilliant money managers who keep telling us the market is too dangerous and all the home gamers who've been able to make fortunes in individual stocks since March. Bye, bye, bye. I think I figured it out. 
It's not that stocks are too dangerous. It's that the hedge funds got too big. When you hear these money managers scaremongering, they almost never mention specific stocks. Oh, sure, maybe they'll call it Fang or Fang Man, as I'm now hearing Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, Apple, and NVIDIA. But they'll rarely denounce an individual stock or even hype it. They're focused on these giant averages and the bond market. In other words, they're not playing the same game as regular people. The home gamers I speak to are focused on finding individual stocks that can make them money over time. They want high-quality growth companies run by top-notch executives with share prices that aren't too expensive on the out years. It's apples, and I don't mean that to be apple, but it's apples and oranges. See, now, most new investors, like the 13 million strong Robin Hood contingent that is so often talked about, They've made their money betting on individual stocks, and it hasn't exactly been hard to find winners in the last few months. They were sitting right in front of your face like the purloined letter of Poe fame. You like your iPhone. You spend a lot of time on Instagram. You order everything from Amazon. You use Microsoft for your business software. You watch your videos on Netflix. These have all been fabulous winners. And frankly, they were as obvious as it gets. Much more obvious than some basket put together by some alpha that doesn't even let Tesla in. These big-time money managers are out here talking about the giant indices and the funds and the futures and the bonds and the dollar, and that's what they care about because those markets are big enough to absorb their money. But for most part, the newbies don't need no stinking index funds, or at least that's what they think. Who wants to balance out winners like Adobe or NVIDIA with losers like Exxon or Occidental? These home gamers don't want to be told the broader market is scary and dangerous and probably a bubble. They don't care about the broader market as a whole. They're just trying to find the next NVIDIA. And who can blame them? NVIDIA is the perfect so-called bubble stock. It's not really a bubble at all. While it looks spectacularly expensive right now, it trades at 54 times this year's earnings. You know what? The stock is much cheaper when you look at the so-called out years, 22, 3, 4, 5. Or let me put it this way, looking back. Two years ago, NVIDIA seemed outrageously expensive based on its earnings estimates. But those estimates, they turned out to be way too low. In retrospect, do you know that NVIDIA was only trading at 20 Times future earnings, <laughs> you just didn't know it yet. But if you bet on NVIDIA in late 2018, you made a killing because this greatest semiconductor growth story of our era was actually inexpensive. So how come none of those big-time money managers want to find the next NVIDIA? Why do they always talk about the whole market? Simple, because they run too much money. This causes a host of different problems. First, their megaphones are so powerful that it's risky for them to mention the stocks they like on TV. That stock will then go up. They'll be tempted to sell. And then the SEC will nail them for pumping and then dumping. Much safer to speak in vague terms about the broader market. Second, when you're managing billions upon billions of dollars, you don't care about the next NVIDIA because it's too small to move the needle. With that much money, there are only a handful of individual stocks that are large enough to make a difference. Otherwise, they end up owning a gigantic chunk of a company that they can't move in and out of. Much better for them to swing around the derivatives markets. In fact, many of these hedge fund luminaries that you see will straight up say they can't discuss individual stocks. They're almost proud of it. But you know what? They're just trying to be responsible. But it means their opinions aren't worth much if you're trying to pick individual stocks. Back in my day, the hedge funds were smaller. We had our own ideas. We picked stocks the same way as you do. Now, though, you need to understand that these institutional money managers are not playing the same game as individual investors. Their advice is only useful if you've got your own fund with billions of dollars in assets under management, trying to figure out what the Fed's going to do, trying to figure out Treasury, trying to figure out PP. I don't know what you're trying to figure out, but you're sure not trying to figure out NVIDIA. 
So if you're looking for opportunities, you have to recognize that the masters of the universe aren't even talking their book about individual stocks anymore. They're focused entirely on whether they like or hate few stocks and bond indices that are large enough to handle their gigantic positions. Just remember, individual stocks may be too small for these household name hedge fund icons, but they're not too small for you. Stick with Kramer. On an ugly day for the averages, some stocks still soared to record highs. Stocks like RH, which you may know as Restoration Hardware, which reported a magnificent quarter last night. We've liked this one forever, not just because anyone who's stuck indoors during the pandemic is a major incentive to make their home a much nicer place to live. But even I didn't expect results this incredible. See, RH delivered a good revenue beat, but thanks to some massive margin improvement, they gave us an eye-popping earnings number, $4.90 per share. And I was only looking for $3.41. Throw in the fact that more than 20% of the stock had been sold short going into the quarter, although some against some exotics. Well, you got some explosive action. RH rocketed $64 or 20%. You heard me, $64 on a lousy day. At this point, the stock's more than quintupled from the March lows. Um, yeah, you always worry about chasing, but honestly, this may be the best run retailer in America if you even still consider it a retailer. Maybe it's something better. we got to find out exactly what it is. So let's take a deep dive into this stunning quarter with Gary Friedman, the bankable chairman and CEO of RH. Gary, congratulations, and welcome back to Mad Buddy. It's great to be here, Jim. Thank you. All right, Gary, when I see a, a note, a letter starts with one of my favorite writers, Emerson, talking to lead. When I listen to someone say, you know what, all those companies, those fine companies, you know, their performance isn't as good. I say, you know what, that's not a retailer. It's a it's a concept, a taste vehicle. Taste per share is what you're offering us. Well, uh, you know, we we like to say great brands don't chase customers. Customers chase great brands. And. Uh, what we're trying to uh, build here and conceptualize is a, an ecosystem of products, places, services, and spaces that all kind of render and uh, amplify the RH brand, render it more valuable and, and, and uh, 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 amplify it. And, um, you know, so it's a, it's a different path where, where as, as we said, uh, you know, as I used Emerson's quote, you know, do not follow where the path may lead, go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Um, we're trying to do something new. You were down 40%. Now we're up 44% in core business, 47% in August, 44% so far. But we're in a recession, for heaven's sake. How are you doing this? Well, we, we can't take all the credit for it. I think there's uh, clearly, uh, you know, a, a consumer shift that's happening. Uh, and, you know, people are hold up at home. Uh, you know, they're focused on their homes. You've got a, a huge market in travel, leisure, and entertainment. That's a, a, a massive market that's basically shut down. And so we're, we're benefiting from some of that shift. And uh, at the same time, I'd say, uh, you know, we, we did a, uh, you know, our teams did a great job of kind of improvising, adapting, and overcoming. Uh, you know, when you when you all of a sudden have a business that drops 40 points and, you know, the ability to react to that and then re-react to uh, the, the trends that are happening now. But, uh, um, but, you know, also I'd say, you know, what's happening now is somewhat temporal. I think there's going to be some systemic shifts uh, in spending that will last, I think, for the next year or two, uh, could be longer. 
Uh, but but the important thing, you know, we we try to say in the company is is stay focused on the big rocks. You know, don't get distracted by kind of the short term noise. Stay focused on our long term narrative. And you know, we've we've got a we believe a really compelling vision and strategies for the future. And and that's the most important thing to us is is stay focused on that. Uh, you know, we'll 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 benefit from the shifts right now, but. You know, that's that's not anything what I, I call strategic. Uh, and so, uh, you know, so we're, we're, you know, we'll make the most of, of what's happening, um, but but it really doesn't affect our long term vision or long term strategy. Well, your long term vision, we were talking about five billion. Now, obviously, you've got something much bigger in mind. Uh, and I think what I didn't really count on was how much money you would make uh Per item that you sold, although I think, as you know, that the club is a fabulous bargain. I am struck by the fact that you're offering luxury goods at much lower than luxury prices and still making more money than everybody else. And it's a conundrum I can't solve. Um, <laughs> well, that's good, because then you give our playbook to too many people. <laughs> but it, it's really look, it's all about, I think, you know, doing extraordinary, remarkable, and amazing work. And uh, what, what we've learned is if, if you do extraordinary, remarkable, and amazing work, you can always figure out how to monetize it. And so our, our focus, as you know, we've articulated for quite a long time now, is to continue to kind of elevate and expand the RH brand. And, and the, the key word there is elevate, mm-hmm. right? Not just expand. Uh, so by elevating the brand and elevating every aspect of the brand, elevating the the product assortment, elevating uh, the consumer experience, elevating uh, the operational infrastructure and, and how we you know, run the business. We, we've really reconceptualized every aspect of this brand. And, and, it, and you know, people say, well, gosh, this has happened very quickly. And I say, no, it's happened over decades. You know, right, this is, this right. really represents decades of work to build something uh, extraordinary or remarkable or amazing. And, and, and not that I'm, I'm saying that's what we are today, but, but that's what we're focused on building. That's the, the work we're focused on doing. And, you know, if we stay on that path and we stay focused on that, I think, um, you know, as Bernard Arnault, you know, so eloquently said, you know, luxury goods are the only place it's possible to make luxury margins. And there's a lot of benefit to positioning a brand at the high end of the market. You know, you get much right. more leverage, uh, if you can build real desirability, if you can uh, you know, uh, have products and services and, and experiences that are um, really authentic, inspiring and aspirational, uh, you know, people want better things all the time. I mean, that's been proven throughout the course of humanity. So, um, but, yeah, but, but go ahead. But there are also some demographic trends that are working so much in your favor as you know, when every time I buy one of your things, I send you a picture of it, which I'm sure it's like, oh, my <laughs> God, do. Kramer sent me. You know, I'm like, what is it with the guy? But when you have a second home, you have a place at the beach, when you have people selling city apartments to move to those second homes because you're working from home. Well, we don't know where else to go. And sometimes, you know, Gary, we don't have good taste, but you do. And we want to borrow yours. Well, I think that's at the core of what we do. We, we, we like to say there's those with taste and no scale and those with scale and no taste. And we believe the idea of scaling taste is very large and far reaching. Uh, and, and really what it, what comes down to is, you know, we, we like to say, you know, time is the ultimate luxury and, and businesses that deliver time value will become more valuable. So as you say, you know, those of us that may not have taste, I mean, look, you, you have your own taste, 
but right. the ability to come to somewhere like RH, uh, where we've integrated all these different categories in a, in a beautiful and seamless way, present it in a very aspirational way, support it with you know, design services. Today, we're, we, we built the largest residential interior design firm in North America. Right. You know, so we, we simplify it for you and we deliver time value. And that, that in itself is a level of luxury that people will, you know, they'll pay, pay for that. They'll pay more for that. Uh, but you, you can't just, you know, stamp yourself luxury. It's, it's every aspect of the business, uh, you know, has to deliver an, an extraordinary value uh, now, and an extraordinary experience. Now, the last question I have is, is that you're not, uh, people talk about shutting down physical. You make it clear that that's a loser. You don't shut down physical. You go double down on physical. And so I first want to ask you about the five acres you're trying to buy about about five minutes from me in Jersey and Morristown, what that's going to be. And then I priced out RH3. I priced it out. You're gorgeous shot. Why are you selling that for $100,000 less than it would cost for a week? What are you trying to do there? Um. <laughs> Well, we'll be happy to to host you on RH three, and uh, uh, so so that you know, call me anytime to if if you need to get a reservation. Um, but let, let's start with your first question in, on physical retail. Look, I I, I think the um, you know the the way retail is characterized in the media, you know, it's it's the death of retail, and uh, um, nobody's going to want to shop st- stores anymore. And the, the growth of online and, and the facts are, you know, until the pandemic, I think uh, 85% of retail sales were done in physical stores uh, with the pandemic. Maybe that'll shift to, uh, uh, you know, 80%, you know, and that would mean 20% of, of sales are done online. Uh, and whenever there's a trend like that and a movement like that, a lot of times, you, you know, you get a lot of people, you know, using simplifying assumptions that, oh, you can make more, more money online in retail stores, there's the death of retail. I think it's also overrated. Uh, the, the, the fact is there hasn't been a retail brand for Amazon and some of the other marketplace businesses, but there hasn't been a, a retail brand that's reached a billion dollars profitably, an online brand. Uh, every online business that has scaled and reached, you know, even to get reach 100 million they've had to open retail stores uh and you know it's it's really about the the prohibitive cost of marketing an invisible store you know the cost of digital advertising which is a moving target mm-hmm. um i think the world's going to come back and realize that if physical physical retailing is is not dead it's it's just lacked of uh it's it's just lacked a sense of imagination right um and uh and what what we're doing is is just what i believe is you know the right thing to do create inspiring spaces uh that you know in in our case it blurs the line between residential and retail create spaces that are more home than store you know blurs Mm -hmm. the lines between indoors and outdoors uh you know that and and blurs the lines between home and hospitality and it creates an integrated experience that's worth going to that's inspiring to go to and i like to say most retail stores are archaic windowless boxes that lack any sense of humanity right there's there's no fresh air there's no natural lights plants die in a department store so i i think we're really just doing what obviously should be done it's just that there's this massive focus and shift to online and it's and it's created a massive shift of capital uh, to online. And that's why, again, I call it, we're going to look back and call this the lost decade of retail, because 
you know, all retailers really need to do is open websites. <laughs> but, I know. I but know. Under investing, well, yeah, under investing in the retail stores is, you know, that will create the death of retail. All right. Well, look, we got to roll. Uh, congratulations. You're an inspiration to all of us. Hey, man, you're a genius. You are. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, Jim. Gary Friedman, Chairman CEO of RH. Read his letter. Read his letter. Understand how business should be done in this country. Man, buddy's back into the break. We need to talk about Encino, and that's in Big C. I know one of the summer's hottest IPOs with a stock that exploded from 31 to 91 on its first day of trading in mid-July. Largest pop for tech stock. Here's a company that makes cloud-based software for financial institutions from the world's largest banks like Barclays, Bank of America to smaller credit unions. Since that deal, Encino's been a roller coaster. The stocks quickly pulled back to the 70s before mounting another major rally, climbed to 103 before the tech sell-off got rolling last week. By the closing Tuesday, Encino had rolled back nearly all of its gains, sinking to $77. Turns out that was an incredible buying opportunity. See, last night, Encino reported its first quarter as a publicly traded company. And the numbers were just nothing short of spectacular. An awesome top and bottom line beat with excellent guidance for both the next quarter and the full year. No wonder the stock roared 7% today on a really horrible day. So could it be worth buying here? The sky-high valuation still makes me a tad nervous, but there's no doubt the fundamentals are on your side, which is why I want to take a closer look first time with Pierre Nade. He is the CEO of Encino. We've got to learn more about this quarter and this company's prospects because, as you know, I did a whole piece about why this is a great one. Mr. Pierre Nade, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks a lot, Jim. Thanks for having us. All right, so let's get right to it. This was a truly fabulous quarter. There are going to be a lot of people who say, oh, my God, one more cloud-based software company. Jim, why do you like them? I say it's because of the infancy of which you're in, and the banks historically have not liked the cloud, but you're dragging them, kicking and screaming, and when they get there, they like it. You know, if you look at the digital transformation movement out there with banks, and the realization that with COVID, the work from home, the efficiency gains they can get. You know, we can make a loan close in 40% faster than they used to. We've got customers telling us using our account opening software that um, they do more account openings in three days on Encino than they did in the previous 18 months on their previous software, okay? The flexibility of the platform. So we are literally gaining that momentum in the market, and I'm just excited about the massive market opportunity a 10 billion TAM that we are pursuing. So we're literally at the starting of this whole revolution. Now, today, there were some people saying, Jim, you're too excited about it. Uh, Jamie Dimon, world's best banker, saying the traders have to be back in September. I am telling them that has nothing to do with what you guys do. No, so the way we look at it is literally the long-term value we can add to banks, the penetration we're seeing in big banks, small banks, Internationally, we've got offices now in Japan, Australia, we've got London, we've got Toronto. So the way I look at this is much more about the long-term value we can add. And um, the public currency is giving us the right to look strategically at the future. It's giving us the right um, brand uh, recognition in Europe. So I'm getting into those more conservative markets. 
So I'm just looking at building the best software in the market and transform banks as fast as we can. Now, I'm not that used to seeing the banks, which are so stodgy, adopt this. The last one we did was very successful, which was Ellie Mae, which just changed hands last week, by the way. Uh, uh, it went to ICE, to the Intercontinental. Are you looking at other verticals in banks? Or what, what is the kind of thing that you can, you can use your currency to buy? Yeah, so look, um, we finished, we're building a platform that can do three things. We can onboard customers. We can originate any loan type from the most complex commercial loan down to the most simplistic uh, retail loans. And then we can open any account type. If you look at that, that's where the massive amounts of people and compliance and regulation are in banking. But on top of that, um, efficiency gains and customer satisfaction. We're now building a whole layer that we call NIC, Encino IQ, which is our application of AI, machine learning, and analytics that we will inject the intelligence into these banking processes. That will make people make better decisions. They will be more informed. It will be more fair decisions. And you can push all this intelligence down to the front lines, which I think is very exciting and will change the experience of people working in banks. It will make banking fun again. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why you did so well with the PPP program. Most of the, of the banks stumbled. We actually read about I happen to be a big fan of J.P. Morgan. I applied for PPP through them, but they did have some, uh, some things that were un- unfortunate, no advice that occurred there. Your PPP exposure seemed like a great door opener. Are you now finding that companies that went to you for PPP uh, to figure, figure out how to do it are now getting, uh, taking the rest of the suite of products? No, absolutely. We uh, pumped through our platform more than $50 billion in the U.S. of PB funding to small business. We're very proud of that because we want to help the small businessman stay on its feet uh, through this process in this period. We also then take, took that experience to the U.K. where we helped some of the larger banks there on the CBOS program. Um, so that flexibility and the speed that we could deploy this on was really remarkable, and people are seeing that value. The second thing I'm seeing is you know, many banks said, yeah, we need an electronic channel, we need digital, uh, but maybe later. Now with, with the work from home thing, as well as the PPP, it's becoming an imperative. And I think banks are now moving at a more urgent rate to provide those online channels and, and the ability to interact with their customers remotely. Couldn't agree more. Now, one last question. I think that people say, wait a second, is this just still more one Silicon Valley startup, whatever? You guys are in Wilmington, North Carolina. What's that like? Can you get the right engineers? And is it, uh, do you have the field yourself? You know, what a great place to be. We were founded out of a community bank here. A bunch of entrepreneurs and smart people said uh, there must be a better way. Build the internal platform. And then uh, I came here to help start this company. Um, we hired over 200 people so far this year out of 11,000 applications. Wow. Our um, recruitment business sits in our, inside our marketing arm because we sell the whole experience, the, the ocean where we live, the waterways, the boats, the whole life experience. And I can tell you, it's a fantastic quality of people we attract. My turnover rate is low. I have no understanding how you run a company with 25% turnover. So. All those benefits are playing out for us, and I think it's showing in our results. Yeah, I loved it in your call where you said, look, if you're here, you don't need to worry about the big commute, but an hour and a half in London, you want your company software because people do want to work from home. Uh, Pierre, that was just a great quarter. Congratulations on coming public. Really great to see you. All right, so people, uh, this is a software company that kind of has its own niche 
and I really like it. We did well with Ellie May, you do well with this one. Encino, and uh, wow, I mean, I've, Pierre Nadei is really doing terrific. Man, buddy's back after the break. It is time! It's time for the light round! Of course, and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski day! Time for the lightning round! Let's start with Rick in Washington. Rick! Hey, Kramer. This is Rick in Paulsbo, Washington. Uh, 14 nautical miles and two light years from Seattle. I hope that you're not, you're not where the fires are, right? No, oh, no. We heavens. just get the smoke. All right. Yeah, what's up? Yeah. Um, about a year and a half ago, I bought some ON Semi uh, based on it being a 5G uh, pick and mm-hmm, shovel play. Mm-hmm. And Tuesday, I got stopped out of it thanks to Mr. Market. Where do you think it stands? Well, I mean, it's okay. Look, the you, you look. Let's go over the best 5G. The number one 5G play is Marvell Technology. Reported a monster good quarter. I would put the number two. As Corvo, that was that one that just had that great meeting the other day. And then number three, I'm going to say is Skyworks Solutions. This one does not fit in, but it's not a bad company. But what I would do is Pam in New Jersey. Pam. Hi, Jim. This is Pam. I want to tell you I watch the show every day. Oh, thank you, Pam. And I just, and I just want to say how much I absolutely enjoy listening to your interviews with the company CEOs. We're trying you to know, learn from them. You and me both. What's going on? Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to gain the insight and for sharing the knowledge, Jim. Much appreciated. Thank you. Um, Okay. I have a stock, Jim. It's bouncing around. It had a great second quarter. Uh, It's in the cybersecurity space. I want to know if you see any possible mergers or acquisitions for FireEye. No, I do not. I think that the ones that are winning are CrowdStrike, number one. Uh, Zscaler number two and Palo Alto uh, Networks number three. And I don't want to go beyond that, frankly, because that's enough to do the job. We're going to take one more. Let's go to Dexter in California. Dexter. Booyah, Jim. How are you doing? That's what I want. I want want that kind of fiery booyah. What's going on? Yeah. First time caller, long time listener. Thank you for all you do for us home gamers. All right. I want to give a special shout out to my uncle Ernie in Virginia that got starred me in the market. But between you and him, I made some mad uncle money. Uncle Ernie, Uncle Ernie, I had Uncle Ernie. What's going on? I love Uncle Ernie. Okay, Jim. Part of what I do is connecting companies and software providers to various e-commerce solutions. One integrated platform that's frequently requested is a company that just went public in August. With the holidays rolling around. I think this company is ripe for the picking. What is your opinion on big commerce? Yeah, I saw that, and people didn't like the quarter. Um, they ought to come on. They ought to come on, find out whether maybe people were incorrect in not liking the quarter. That's the only thing I can advise. But I thank you for the kind comments, and that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Is it time to circle back to Sage Therapeutics? 
hey, this is a biopharma company focused on debilitating brain disorders with a stock that's had a very rough time over the past 12 months. We've spoken to them before about what looked like a promising pipeline. Late last year, one of Sage's depression drugs failed a high-profile phase three trial. Stock got pulverized. It was trading at 154 last November, and then boom, plumbed to 25 at the March lows. Since then, though, Sage has started moving forward with a new trial now that they've gotten guidance from the FDA. And this past spring, the company announced a major restructuring, become a leaner, more focused company. Even with all that, the stock's only rebounded 54 bucks. However, Sage got a nice boost today after management hosted a big R&D event to highlight the depression, neurology, and neuropsychiatric franchises. That's why the stock rallied more than 5%. So is it safe to speculate on this one again? Let's check in with Dr. Jeff Jonas, the president of Sage Therapeutics, to get a better sense of what his company is working on. Dr. Jonas, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, thanks for having me, Jim. I hope you're doing well. I'm trying to do that, Doc. But you know what? That's a good place to start because I think that there's a lot of depression going on. But, sir, it's not irrational. It's rational depression. What does someone trying to deal with very difficult brain issues involving depression deal with the fact that, you know what? It's reasonable. You know, it's a really important point. First, I think it's important for all of us to acknowledge what a strange time and a difficult time this has been. And how, you know, really, people have done a great job, especially at Sage and elsewhere, going back to work, our first responders, the initiatives to look at COVID. And I just think we have to acknowledge all of these efforts moving forward. But to your point, we know factually now that the rates of depression, rates of anxiety and diagnoses are up two to three times. And it's my hope that this is an important opportunity to reflect on how important mental health really is that people feeling better about their mental health, being better with their mental health, is actually a critical societal issue. We need to treat mental health like a physical illness, treat it urgently, and in order to get people back to work and back to their families. Well, before we go to the specifics, um, there's a strange thing we have in this country. It's the month of May. It's National Mental Health Month. What the hell's that? I mean, is it really a month? I mean, isn't it kind of a year? Well, you know, look, I, I, I've been a proselytizer about the importance of treating mental health urgently, you know, since I started my career. I'm a, as you know, I'm a recovering psychiatrist. Um, and, and, you know, for us to get back, you know, to work, for the, company, for the world to recover, it's important. We need vaccines. We need treatments. But people have to be able to function. And, you know, when we think about what we're doing at SAGE, that's always been our MO. Our focus is what do we need to do to get people better? And so I agree with you. It should be national mental health should be an everyday priority. All right. So let's talk about some of your franchises. You are working on the most difficult issues. You're working on the brain. It's incredible how little we still know about the brain. I loved your presentation because you're talking about two things that I think we can get our heads around. Executive deficits and essential tremors and that those discrete issues can be possibly treated by your drugs. Well, yeah, you know, that's something we, you know, it's very important to us. We're trying to focus on what things will make a difference in patients' lives. So a great example is essential tremor. Nothing new, maybe for 30 years, old drugs are being used. And yet, if you think about how debilitating this can be, you can't put on your makeup. You can't pick up a cup of coffee without embarrassment. And some people accept this as part of aging. And we say, we don't think that's acceptable. We think we have a a program with our compound SAGE-324 that, you know, we've shown dramatic reductions in essential tremor. And we and if it's successful, would really be one of the first drugs to be approved for that indication in decades. Same thing for executive function. 
That's the ability to process information, to make decisions. You know, we talk to patients, and that's one of the ways we design our trials. People can't balance their checkbooks, or they become confused with stresses at work. No drug has really approached this. So we're really excited about our SAGE 718 program because we think it's unique. We've shown advantages and benefits, open-label early studies, in Huntington's disease and in normals. So we think there's a tremendous opportunity to advance patient health there as well. Now, you did your stock. You, look, you were a straight-up guy. You know that there was a failure, and you had to take aggressive action. You did a major restructuring. Well, that major restructuring, which did involve, and I know this must have just really crushed you, some very big layoffs, will that make it so that you can bring some of these other important drugs to fruition? Yeah, that's really was our intent from the start. You know, no one's ever said drug development's easy. It's a roller coaster. And we, we, we adjusted from that. We learned a lot from that trial. And, of course, drug development is an iterative learning process. And that gave us a lot of comfort about how we're moving forward. But that was a very difficult, I mean, one of the hardest business decisions I've ever made in my career. But, you know, we have a, a really broad pipeline we needed to prioritize. And, yes, our, we're in great financial shape, and that was exactly our intent, being able to move the company forward. And frankly, you know, I'm as confident today as I have ever been in terms of the, the variety of our pipeline and how we've managed the business. You know, the, uh, we're very close to the tele, uh, telemedicine companies, Teladoc. They now have a very thriving psychiatric practice, which is great. But I feel like what they end up doing is uh, it really is prescribing pills that have been around for 50, 60 years. I mean, there isn't anything new other than, say, the ketamine well, drug by J&J, where they may be charging too much. So we're in urgent need for what you're trying to do, aren't we? Well, I completely agree. And I look like we should give kudos to uh, you know, J&J for a novel mechanism. There haven't been many. But it's an interesting point. You know, Sage, we've been doing telemedicine before it became fashionable. Why? Because we believe that patients with depression ought to be treated quickly and then go home, go back to work. We don't think they have to enlist in the mental health army, you know, automatically. And so our, our drug, as you know, Sage 217 or Zoranolone, in all of our studies, has shown very rapid response. And so far, the data has shown that it's durable. That means you take it two weeks and you may not need another treatment, you know, for maybe months or, or longer. And if you think about that model, it's ideally situated for telemedicine. It's like the rest of medicine. If you have pneumonia, you get better. You call your doctor or you check in only if you need to. We think this is going to go a long way to provide a new treatment option for patients, one that's sorely needed and, frankly, that fits with the new world. Go back to work. Take care of your families. If you need further treatment, call your doc. But otherwise, go back about your business. Well, doc, many of us are, are, are just so hopeful that you'll come up with something, particularly because this is the most depressed I've ever seen people in my lifetime. And that is going to lead to, to uh, ideating and, and actuality. So thank you so much for what you're doing. I hope it works out. Thanks so much, Jim. All right. Good to see you, sir. That's Dr. Jeff Jonas, CEO of Sage Therapeutics. This is a tough stock because the, what he's trying to do is tough. But if he succeeded, it's, well, it's gigantic. We have money back into the break. I guess you know what I'm doing tonight at 7 p.m. That's right, football is back, baby, and it's on NBC. Oracle delivered a good quarter. We like that. Peloton shot the lights out. Is there anything stopping those guys? They are amazing. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow. 